right, I want to start uh, this session by saying hi to Todd Friel. He just texted me to say he's watching on the live stream, so I have to be good here. I, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about I, this, whole, this whole weekend is about uh, woke ideology and, and critical race theory and all of that. I had originally intended to start with a fairly detailed definition of critical race theory, running out of time, and I know Daryl's going to cover that anyway. So uh, let me just, what is that? Oh, thanks. So let me just talk about the dangerous drift of woke dogma, which is, is clear, I think, from recent church history. Uh, the very same arguments that today's social justice warriors are, are making actually gave rise to what was known as the social gospel under Walter Rauschenbusch a hundred years ago. You may have heard Rauschenbusch's name. If not, look him up. He's in Wikipedia. There's an entry about him. He was an American theologian who, uh, who developed this notion of the social gospel, it was called. And uh, modernists and liberals adopted his system, and they argued that the church needs to reimagine the gospel so that it, it, the, law, the gospel, they said, should no longer be a message about sin and redemption. But their doctrine, uh, they said, should be about the church redeeming society, the church bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And that became sort of the theme and the direction that determined where all of the liberal denominations ultimately went. And their doctrine became just one more works-based religion about good deeds and public humanitarianism, which is where the human heart always wants to go, works. And that, I'm convinced, is precisely where the message of social justice is headed in this generation as well. In two conferences in 2018, both the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel insisted, all of their speakers, that social justice is a gospel issue. And by doing that, they have confounded many of their constituents' understanding of the gospel. And since then, they have severely and systematically muddied the question of what true justice is and what brings it about. They're encouraging evangelicals to indulge, I think, in sloppy thinking and about some of the most important issues that we need to get right, starting with the gospel and the righteousness of God, which is the bedrock that defines what authentic justice is. If you buy the popular evangelical narrative about social justice, that will undermine your view of the church, church leadership, sound doctrine, and a host of other moral and ethical questions. You see it happening with the church uh, and many leaders in the church arguing that we need to loosen up on our rhetoric against homosexuality and the LGBTQ movement. Uh, lots of things are changing. This is not only about ethnic strife. It's about the entire package of woke dogma. And the problem goes back to the fact that the social justice movement, critical race theory, intersectional feminism... All of these movements have embraced concepts of justice and righteousness that are not taken from Scripture, but from Marxist categories. And the terminology, the values, the underlying ideology of social justice and critical race theory are borrowed directly from worldly sources that are openly hostile to what the Word of God teaches. This is not a movement, even, even this, the social justice movement within the evangelical community is not a movement that arose from within Scripture. It came out of secular academia. And, and this is the heart of the problem. Social justice and biblical justice are not the same thing. And in fact, biblical justice is at odds with virtually every one of the defining features of what today is called social justice. Social justice, for example, wants to see the redistribution of wealth taking wages and resources from society's most productive people and giving them to the least productive. But biblical justice says if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. You never hear that 
in all the evangelical talk about justice because it's no longer part of the popular evangelical view of justice. Social justice says everyone should get an equal share of wealth and wages and privileges and resources, but biblical justice says everyone should get what he deserves. Social justice lobbies for affirmative action and ethnic quotas. Biblical justice calls for absolute impartiality. Social justice argues that reparations are due because of the sins of our ancestors, but biblical justice says the soul who sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Social justice sees privilege as inherently unjust. Biblical justice extols the blessings of divine grace and that is bestowed on sinners by definition when they don't believe it or when they don't deserve it. They deserve everything other than grace. So scripture extols privilege, the very thing that social justice condemns. Social justice has a twisted idea of compassion where, you know, borders should be open and courts should be lenient to criminals and serious crimes can be excused or tolerated among especially among certain ethnic groups or disadvantaged segments of society, diminish the punishments of their crimes on, on cultural grounds. But biblical justice argues for the punishment of evildoers across the board. Social justice says we should believe all women, and it, takes, it tends to take accusations against authority figures at face value without any corroborating evidence. If you're a member of any privileged class and you are accused of any form of abuse, you will be deemed guilty unless you can prove your innocence, and maybe not even then. Biblical justice insists on due process. The standard and the ultimate goal of social justice is an absolute equality of outcome. Daryl talked about this last night. So that everyone gets the same test scores, everyone gets the same privileges, and so on you know, the participation award. The standard and goal of biblical justice is true righteousness. And true righteousness is defined by the character and the commandments of God. One more thing. Under social justice, the government is sovereign. Under biblical justice, God is sovereign. I hope you can see that social justice is not truly just by any biblical standard. Proverbs 28, verse 5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So, let me raise a nagging question. And this is what I want to get to into in this hour. Why is it that so many supposedly conservative evangelicals are suddenly obsessed with what is clearly a neo-Marxist view of social justice? Why? Here's why. Because the current generation of 20 to 30-somethings are the spiritual heirs of about four or five decades of rank pragmatism, the so-called seeker-sensitive church growth methodology, a philosophy of ministry where the church watches what's popular and influential in the world and, and tries to adapt every fad and every cultural craze into the message and the liturgy of the church seeker sensitivity, and social justice is simply the latest fad that evangelicals have adopted. And the social justice narrative also provides an ideal opportunity for young evangelicals to indulge in a little bit of virtue signaling. It's an easy way for culturally savvy evangelicals to impress one another and, and they hope, gain some admiration from the secular world. It's an attempt to signal that, that we're on the same page as the world when it comes to virtue and values and righteousness, which is backward thinking for the church. But it's become pervasive. You know that COVID masks don't do any good to stop viruses, but that's a form of virtue signaling. It's the, it's the, the holy garb of the religion of modern fear. It's the it's the religious vestment you must wear to demonstrate your righteousness. 
required even by the government. So let's talk about this issue of virtue signaling. I think the rank hypocrisy and the man-pleasing strategy that underlies the current evangelical drift on they show as clearly as possible how how far an emphasis on social justice can carry people in the church away from what Christ has called us to do and to be. So turn with me to James chapter 1. James 1, verses 26 and 27. These are familiar words, but I want to apply them to the current situation. Here's what James writes. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it fascinates me that James would single out an activity that would never attract any kind of public notice or earn fame or name recognition for anyone. This is the polar opposite of of trying to gain a big audience on Twitter. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Nobody notices that. Nobody celebrates that. But James says that, that is pure and undefiled religion. What he's describing is the polar opposite of Phariseeism. Jesus, you know, said of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 5, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. And Matthew 6, verse 5, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. And verse 16, they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Now think of this, the Pharisees, they had lots of faults. But Jesus' harshest criticism for them always focused on this pathological need they had to get human applause. They had an insatiable craving for the esteem of others. Everything they did was aimed at gaining the favor and admiration of men rather than gaining the approval of God and the magnification of God's glory. And the world is rife with people who are on a relentless quest for human acclaim. I wish I could tell you that the church is different, but let's face it, we, and, and I would include all of us in this, we still struggle in our flesh with the remnants of sin, and this is one tendency that not only trips up all of us as individuals, I would say this is the besetting sin of today's evangelical movement. In fact, I have said that repeatedly. American evangelicals are, are far, far too concerned with what the world thinks of us. You see this all the time on Twitter. Somebody will say, well, how do you think that affects the unbelievers that are watching you, for you to say this harsh thing about homosexuality being a sin? They're not concerned with truth. They're concerned with what the world thinks of us. And we are not as as devoted as we need to be to the pursuit of God's glory and his good pleasure and the proclamation of his truth. And here's the problem. The Western evangelical obsession with winning the world's admiration is incompatible with God's strategy for winning the lost. You know, every decade or so, trendy evangelicals will adopt some new idea about how we can best get the world to be more impressed with the church. And usually it involves a toned-down abridgment of the gospel. Sometimes the result is a whole different message. It might be a manifesto about self-esteem. That's what Robert Schuller did. Or a promise of earthly prosperity. Christian television is full of people like that. Or some benign-sounding moralistic message. Or a popular political agenda. Or preferably something that sounds positive and appealing. And most evangelicals seem to think that our, our evangelism would be much more effective if we could just get people to like us or admire us before we have to get into issues like sin and righteousness and judgment. And frankly, lots of evangelicals are so determined to sound positive and likable that they never bring up those themes at all. Sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of. If you never mention it, 
How is it that you're giving the gospel to the world? The average Christian today wants people to feel comfortable rather than convicted when they hear the gospel message. And that's not the strategy God chose. So the evangelical movement has gone through a century or so of missional strategies that always involve adopting you know, some aspect of the world's agenda. In other words, we keep hearing that the church needs to be more like the world. And, and we're told that if we don't do this, we're going to lose a generation or alienate some subculture or otherwise incur the displeasure of some people group whose beliefs or objectives are impossible to reconcile with the gospel in the first place. And the rhetoric that accompanies these strategies always suggests, have you noticed this, it's the church that needs to change, not the sinner. That's the message the church has been giving to the world for at least 50 years. And therefore, all of these strategies actually undermine the gospel call for repentance. And in fact, that whole way of thinking is inherently hostile to the idea of calling sinners to repentance. And that's a major reason that the word repentance has all but disappeared from the message the world hears from the church today. A hundred years ago, modernists were saying that if the church doesn't reframe Christianity as a system of moral philosophy and abandon our emphasis on the supernatural, because that's unscientific, they said Christianity will never survive the modern, rational, scientific, industrial age. We're, We're behind the times. So men who had attained positions of respectable leadership in the church were claiming that it's just sheer folly to expect modern minds to accept miracles and divine inspiration and biblical inerrancy and even the reality of Christ's resurrection. Spurgeon, for a time, was practically a lone voice steadfastly opposing the modernist trend. History, of course, has proved him right. And then for the first half of the 20th century, we had liberalism. It was an extension of modernism, really. But the liberals were more focused on the notion that certain parts of Scripture are hard to reconcile with the love of God. So, like, how, how after all, could a loving God command the extermination of the Amalekites? And for that matter, if it's really true that God is love, how could God punish sinners in hell? And so the liberals likewise took a selective approach to Scripture, simply rejecting everything that they deemed not sufficiently broad-minded and beneficent. And so liberalism virtually killed, and in practice did kill, all of the mainline Protestant denominations. And by the middle of the 20th century, it ought to have been clear that mainline denominations were dying because they'd embraced liberalism, modernism, and these ideas, while other mostly independent churches uh, continued to thrive if they held on to their belief that all of Scripture is true. Those were the churches that continued to grow and thrive. But even among the most respectable and articulate and knowledgeable evangelicals, there, were, there was a, a core, a team of, of church leaders and scholars who still craved recognition and acceptance or validation of some kind from the world. And in the aftermath of the Scopes trial in the 1920s, evangelical Christianity had had acquired a reputation for being intellectually backward and too narrow-minded. And in those days, fundamentalism and evangelicalism were basically interchangeable terms. They were the same thing at the time. And sophisticated evangelicals wanted to shed the stigma of fundamentalism. They wanted to earn respect, especially from the academic world. And they argued that the way to do that is to abandon the militancy of the fundamentalists and engage themselves in a more friendly kind of theological dialogue with the liberal and neo-orthodox scholars. And so they called themselves neo-evangelicals. And meanwhile, there were, at the opposite end of the spectrum, a noisy gaggle of hyper-militant fundamentalists who had a fiendish lust for conflict, and they had, many of them, dangerously unbridled tongues, 
and a pharisaical wish to be seen and admired as guardians of true religious devotion. And so they turned their fiercest polemical weapons on the neo-evangelicals, and, and that led to a rift that, frankly, we still haven't quite got past today. In virtually every church or educational institution that was led by those original neo-evangelicals, the heart of that movement was Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, all of them are now as liberal as the liberalism that they originally said they hoped to win by being more friendly. Meanwhile, the fundamentalist movement destroyed itself with infighting. Both sides of what was the evangelical movement in the early part of the 20th century basically destroyed themselves. And make no mistake, the fundamentalists were seeking human applause in a different way, but they were just as guilty of man-pleasing as the liberals and neo-evangelicals. Practically everything that was wrong with big movement fundamentalism was rooted in a pragmatic wish to impress men rather than God. You could see that in the way so many of them boasted about numbers and vied with one another to have the biggest Sunday school or the more most far-reaching bus ministry. And they were seeking the favor and the applause of men, although they had a totally different strategy from their neo-evangelical adversaries. It was kind of the same thing. They were all more concerned about what the world thought of them or what other people thought of them. And I was converted out of a liberal church as a teenager in 1971. And in those decades that I have been a believer, 51 years now, I have watched the evangelical movement go through fad after fad. And most of them are variations on the same theme. The moral majority tried to gain followers and influence uh, people by stressing conservative politics. And then in the seeker-sensitive era, purpose-driven churches and all of that, a new generation of church leaders insisted that the way to connect with the world is to impress them with entertainment. You know, let's appeal to people who like rock concerts and amusement parks. And they also tried to make the message as non-threatening as possible for people who don't fear God and frankly don't believe that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And then, starting almost 20 years ago now, we had the emerging church movement insisting that if the church doesn't adopt postmodern ideas and postmodernism's distaste for authoritative, dogmatic truth claims, then the rest of the world is going to reject Christianity entirely. And so they tried to devise a postmodern brand of Christianity. And in the end, a lot of emergent leaders themselves were the ones who actually rejected Christ, apostatized. Still, it seems to me that the mainstream of the evangelical movement, even today, is obsessed with the idea of winning the admiration of the world and escaping the disapproval of those who hate Christ and getting in step with whatever this world's celebrities happen to be obsessed with at any given moment. And and frankly, at the moment, lots of church leaders are still looking for ways to absorb and incorporate or at least accommodate postmodern values. And I'm convinced that is what is behind the evangelical rhetoric about social justice. It's an echo of what we were hearing from the emerging church 15 or 20 years ago. And although people who have grown up in the evangelical subculture cringe every time I say this, I am more convinced than ever that this preoccupation with popularity and fashion is the very essence of sinful worldliness It's a sin, worldliness. To crave applause from men is, especially if you crave that applause more than you want to please God and obey him, that's clear proof that your affections are entirely too earthbound. It's the worst kind of worldliness. Worldliness, I say that word and it sounds quaint, doesn't it? Worldliness is one of those sins sophisticated evangelicals are not supposed to mention, but worldliness frankly, has been a plague on the evangelical movement for now more than a century. And James, the author of this epistle, is as disapproving of worldliness as I am. Look at our text again, James 1.27. One of the characteristics of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now, just how sinful is this desire to cater to worldly tastes and seek the world's acceptance and approval? James regards it as a form of spiritual adultery. James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, he says. He doesn't mince words. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I preached on James 4.4 a few years ago at, at the G3 conference, so I'll just quote that text without commenting on it here. If you want my comments on it, you can listen to the recording of that message. But let me stress something that that I've already said at least twice in this hour, man-pleasing, that is anything that you do that is motivated primarily by a desire for human applause, man-pleasing, is a grievous expression of the very sin that caused the fall in the first place. It is wicked. It is, even if you try to cloak it in religious garb the way the Pharisees did, you know, strapping a broad phylactery on it doesn't change the reality of what it is. And at the moment, one of the most stylish ways of courting the applause of others is this epidemic, or maybe I should say pandemic, of virtue signaling. This was, first of all, I think, a worldly phenomenon, but it is now prevalent in the evangelical community, and it is, I think, the most common way fashionable evangelicals try to let the world know that we're on board with all the talking points of of secular social justice warriors. So we borrow from groups like Black Lives Matter and the Southern Poverty Law Center all of their hashtags, their slogans, their rhetoric, and, of course, their outrage, as if that can be baptized and made into an expression of true righteousness. It can't be. And let me explain and illustrate what I mean. And by the way, this epidemic of virtue signaling in the world at large is so widespread and so obvious that there's even a Wikipedia page devoted to it. You can look it up. But let me give you a better definition than you'll get from Wikipedia. Here's my definition of virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is the... You don't have to write this down because it's long, so don't even try, but here it is. (laughs) You get the recording later and get it if you want to write it down. Virtue signaling is the practice of trying to put one's own moral superiority on display by saying or doing something that has no real practical benefit other than to announce agreement with the most stylish opinion of whatever happens to be trending at the moment. You see this most of all, maybe most clearly, on Twitter. People watch what's trending and then jump on that bandwagon, usually with hashtag activism, you know, as if that does anybody any good. People who do this like to pretend and tell one another that they're being courageous. But it's anything but courageous for a Christian to watch what the world thinks and in order to try to come across as hip or sophisticated. That is not courage. It's worldly. It's also cowardice. But in order to be effective at virtue signaling, you have to be thoroughly conversant with the dominant themes of popular culture. You've got to know what the most fashionable celebrities are and what they believe, and you have to agree with them. And you need to be fully in accord with ideological orthodoxy, according to the Secular Academy. And, of course, you must observe the prevailing standards of political correctness, Other than that, there's really nothing complex about virtue signaling. You can parade your postmodern moral rectitude to an appreciative audience simply by adding a hashtag to your tweets. That's called hashtag activism. Posting hashtags that express approval or outrage about something that you really have no intention of making any effort to address. So it's a gross form of blatant hypocrisy, and it's destructive to real rational discourse. It's also counterproductive, but it's wildly popular today, and it's increasingly common among evangelicals. I first began to notice hashtag activism, that that this was a thing back in 2012, when overnight it seemed to me that everyone, everyone who I followed on Twitter and everyone who followed me on Twitter, it seemed like they were all 
instantly outraged and up in arms about a marauding outlaw in Africa named Joseph Kony. Remember him? Maybe you don't. He is a Ugandan rebel who, and a religious cult leader, by the way, who would kidnap children and sell them, turn them into soldiers and sex slaves. You truly evil individual. And he would, he, he would blend Christian themes and Christian terminology and Christian narratives with evil doctrines of his own making. And in early 2012, his name dominated Twitter hashtags, the hashtags Stop Coney and Coney 2012 were everywhere you looked, everywhere. The outraged denizens of social media, secular people and Christians alike, were demanding that Joseph Coney needed to be apprehended dead or alive before the end of that year, which, frankly, I would have loved to seen. The zeal for that cause was remarkably short-lived. It was really no different from any other trending topic online. And in fact, today, as far as I know, Joseph Coney is still at large, years later, 10 years later. And it turned out that the film that made this whole issue go viral was actually part of a bizarre fundraising scheme. The whole episode ultimately trivialized something that, frankly, is a very serious evil. But if you spend any time online and Watch the proliferation of hashtags. You're familiar with the phenomenon I'm describing. The hashtags will tell you what's trending. There's also a list of trending topics on Twitter. And what socially acceptable opinions are is obvious from it. And this is also the laziest, cheesiest, no-cost way to signal your virtue. But it's a huge thing. And at the end of the day, all forms of virtue signaling have about that much weight, the same, same amount of weight. It's just armchair activism. It's a hypocritical substitute for genuine charity, which is what we're called to as Christians. It's moral posturing. It's a quick and dirty method of doing what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They don't actually go and visit orphans and widows in their affliction, but they'll write hashtags about it all day long. Virtue signaling, it's the cyber world version of saying those long, loud prayers on the street corner. You know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the unenlightened bigots in, their, in the political center, you know, the people to the right of me, or the social Neanderthals that are even further to the right. I only celebrate causes that are politically correct. I post the most popular hashtags three times daily, and I lobby for animal rights. It's like sounding a trumpet as, as if you were doing alms without actually doing anything to help the needy. This is not a strategy that Christians should adopt as a means of getting our message out, and yet I fear that's exactly what's happening across the board in the evangelical movement. The whole social justice uh, discussion is primarily a lot of mere virtue signaling. But it's, it's having a detrimental effect on the church because it's changing our message. It's replacing the gospel with other things. And a lot of evangelicals seem to think that this kind of virtue signaling is a valid substitute for the proclamation of gospel truth. Or at the very least, they think that unless we first strap on the broad phylactery of the social justice agenda, then we don't have any right to proclaim the gospel to the world. Let me cite some examples. I'm not going to name names. I'm not on a quest to embarrass anyone, especially evangelical leaders who some of them over the years have taught things to me and ministered to me. So respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. I I want to be specific as possible without trying to bend the limits of courtesy here. But frankly, I see a lot of esteemed evangelical thought leaders who are falling into this trap. It caught me by surprise a few years ago in the wake of the Ferguson, Missouri incident when uh, evangelical leaders, it seemed like, all of a sudden began using the Black Lives Matter hashtag. And I expressed concern about it at the time and, and got pilloried for it and called a racist and everything else. And then I didn't say a whole lot more about it until about three or four years ago when the two most conservative and best-known evangelical organizations Together for the Gospel and, and uh, 
the Gospel Coalition both hosted conferences urging us all to put social justice at the head of the gospel agenda. And then I became very concerned. These were organizations that had been founded less than a decade before that in order to defend the core, gospel, the core principles of gospel truth. But those, those conferences that year seemed to unleash a flood of hashtag activism and, and virtue signaling, and not only among the people who listened to what they were saying, but among their own writers and speakers and their conference speakers, their constituents. One key evangelical leader sent out a tweet that said this, quote, he says, Last evening, a magnificent African-American brother called me woke. He said, I felt honored, grateful, Might Jesus be making an impact on me? Of course, some won't like this, but go ahead and at me all you want. I don't care. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And another well-known author and conference speaker wrote this, quote, On the day following the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., I have a personal confession to make, he says. The gospel that I have held so dear has been, in reality, a truncated and incomplete gospel. Wow. And that tweet, by the way, was linked to an article he wrote loaded with allegations about racial and economic injustice, calling for equity of outcome in both society and in the church, and pleading with evangelicals to make these issues a dominant theme in our message to one another and to the world. It was basically an adaptation of some communist manifesto sent to the church to say, this is what we need to say instead of what we've been preaching as the gospel. In short, he was saying that the Martin Luther King anniversary had finally opened his eyes to a new and full understanding of the gospel, and he hoped that the rest of us would have a similar epiphany, get woke, and that, that idea has dominated the evangelical discussion pretty much ever since. But here's the thing. You can read that entire article. It's still online. And he makes not one single reference to Scripture anywhere in it. I could cite numerous examples like that from well-known evangelicals. At one of those large conferences that year, a popular pastor, a white guy, said in his conference message that he was interviewing prospective staff people, and he told the placement company that he was working with that he would hire an African-American 7 over an Anglo 8. You get what he means by that. I'm not going to explain it if you don't, but he said he wouldn't hire an African-American 6 because, in his words, and I'm quoting him exactly, an African-American 6 will look and feel to our people like the kind of tokenism that I'm preaching against. Really? The kind of tokenism you're preaching against but trying to practice anyway? So I guess he's okay with tokenism as long as it doesn't look and feel like tokenism. So is it cynical of me to regard that kind of rhetoric as virtue signaling, just mere moral posturing? It's frankly hard to conclude that it's anything else because the aftermath of two major evangelical conferences on social justice, look at it, for now three, four years, it has not brought greater racial harmony or even evangelical unity, but the actual result has been a steep increase in online outrage and angry recriminations coming from people who fancy themselves champions of social justice. And that, in turn has produced a veritable tsunami of virtue signaling. Let me be clear. I'm not saying, and I'm not even implying, that everyone who speaks approvingly of the social justice movement has been guilty of virtue signaling. But I am observing a fact that I don't think can be honestly denied. The recent flood of rhetoric about social justice in evangelical circles has unleashed a tidal wave of virtue signaling among those who are young, restless, and woker than thou. (laughs) And make no mistake, there are lots of them, lots of them. When the emerging church movement was at the peak of its popularity, some of the leading voices in that movement had a lot to say about social justice. This was one of their favorite topics. But most of them were 
simultaneously, I said this last night, they were, their problem was at the same time, they were attacking gospel principles like substitutionary atonement and justification by faith and the exclusivity of Christ because they believed these doctrines were unjust. And by worldly standards of justice, that's true. But when that trend began to wane, the emerging church movement itself began to come apart. Around 2011 or so, I wrote a blog post saying that I'm glad to see the emerging movement die, but emergent religion, it seemed to me, had had strewn all these ideas into the evangelical minds of you know young people, and that they were like postmodern dandelion seeds that in a few years would come up as a new crop of weeds among evangelicals. And you could actually see that happening as early as 2015 when one of the keynote speakers at the Urbana Conference referred to the Black Lives Matter organization as a movement on a mission in the truth of God at an evangelical conference. Urbana's official Twitter feed even took up the cause, and the group who led worship there at that conference wore Black Lives Matter t-shirts. And by 2018, these two organizations, the two best-known, most well-attended conferences sponsored by conservative evangelicals, were also giving their platforms to speakers who were saying essentially the same thing. And it's ironic and frustrating because Starting at least in the early 1980s, some of us were desperately trying to sound an alarm while large movement evangelicalism was sleepwalking through about three decades of seeker-sensitive philosophy with zero interest in doctrinal accuracy. And now we're being told by a younger generation of large movement evangelical leaders that Political orthodoxy is what's supposed to be at the top of our agenda. And you can't credibly deny that politics and political correctness is at the heart of the current evangelical hobby horse. Millennial evangelicals didn't suddenly discover some profound biblical principle that all of their spiritual ancestors had never seen before. But this whole issue, including the rhetoric and the terminology and most of the proposed solutions... All of it was borrowed directly from popular culture, not from scripture. And although social justicians chafe when this fact is pointed out, a lot of it was absorbed into secular pop culture from Marxism and critical race theory, where it was blended then with heavy doses of postmodern values and reworded postmodern rhetoric. This is not a movement that grew from purely biblical ideas. It's all tangled up with things about what constitutes virtue, the idea of virtue that isn't even biblical either. Simply a matter of fact that the version of social justice that has been advocated by many of the leading evangelical social justicians lately, it's just a highly politicized and distinctly left-leaning definition of justice. And some of the panelists at one of those big conferences that year even admitted that they feel they said they feel more amiable toward Martin Luther King's Socinianism and James Cone's black liberation theology than they feel about Jonathan Edwards or or uh, George Whitfield's biblical evangelism because Edwards and Whitfield weren't sufficiently opposed to slavery and frankly even the most conservative voices who have affirmed the social justice movement don't seem to be making any serious attempt to differentiate between biblical principles of justice and what social justice might mean to the average member of Black Lives Matter. Social justice is an entirely different thing from biblical justice, as I said at the beginning. Social justice is a severely truncated and badly twisted notion about legal equity, legal equality compartmentalized justice, dealing mainly with economics, social privilege, civil rights, and in recent years a plethora of political, politically correct causes have been added to the menu, including global warming, animal rights, abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, gender fluidity, war, immigration, socialism, and a cornucopia of similar 
issues that have been borrowed from the political left. That's what woke ideology entails. And the social justician's answer to practically all social ills is a plea for government intervention or a shift in public policy rather than a heightened sense of personal responsibility. Authentic biblical justice would include, as I said, a a host of issues that you never hear from the evangelical activists who are pushing the terminology of social justice most aggressively. What they're talking about is not justice at all if you neglect the moral content of God's law, including biblical standards of sexual purity. There's also the issue of condign punishment for evildoers. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Romans 13-4, if you do evil, be afraid, because that government official does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on the one who, produ- who, who practices evil. And the, the duty and the privilege of work is a matter of biblical justice that somehow always gets left out of the social justice agenda. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. How can you talk about justice and eliminate those principles? And evangelicals who allow secular ideas about political correctness to determine how they signal their own virtue, they're headed for moral and doctrinal catastrophe because there are already voices in the evangelical movement, claiming that if we insist on the biblical standard as written, we will lose our ability to reach feminists and anyone in the LGBTQ community. There are already advocacy groups that self-identify as evangelical who claim that there's no reason a gay person or transsexual shouldn't be able to pursue that lifestyle while retaining his or her church's membership in good standing. The Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco is an ostensibly evangelical organization that exists to train missional church leaders. That's its purpose statement. And one of their senior fellows writes a blog for Christian readers. Here's what this blogger says, quote, Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus choosing to hang with prostitutes, tax collectors, people ostracized and viewed as sinful by the religious establishment. If Jesus were around today, I am 99% sure that he would be kicking it with LBGTQ folks. I'm certain he wouldn't cut them off. He would have dinner with them, but he would tell them the truth. This kind of virtue signaling is not advancing the gospel. It is poisoning the current generation of evangelical thought leaders. And it's going to get worse because this is not virtue. It's shot through with narcissism and worldliness and an unbiblical cynicism that tends to demean actual Christian virtue. If we think we have to watch what's trending in the world and and adjust our message every half decade in order to stay in step with the world, we are not being diligent to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, as James says. Again, that's James 1.27, and James goes on in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, to condemn partiality. Candidly, if evangelical leaders simply studied carefully what the Bible says about impartiality, it would be a helpful corrective to a lot of the social justice rhetoric. What we need is impartiality. I think that would put a stop to a lot of the accusatory virtue signaling and public shame-mongering that we've been hearing from evangelical social justicians for the past few years. Because the Bible says repeatedly that we are not to favor either the rich or the poor. It's wrong, of course, to obviously to show favoritism to those who enjoy some kind of social privilege, to treat wealthy people with favor because of what you might get from that kind of relationship. But it is also likewise wrong and equally sinful to try to balance the scales of justice in favor of the poor and disadvantaged. Justice is supposed to be impartial and and. Tipping the scales in favor of those who are marginalized is not a biblical standard of justice at all. 
And it certainly isn't an idea that needs to be appended to the gospel message. In fact, listen to Jesus' own summary of the gospel message from Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Here is what we need to proclaim to a lost world, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, suffer and on the third day arise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's how Jesus himself summarizes the gospel in a single sentence. He didn't commission us to scold people for the sins of their ancestors or to demean whole people groups for the idiosyncrasies and sins of whatever culture they happen to be born into. He doesn't permit us to differentiate between people based on the color of their skin or their economic status or whatever. But our Lord has commanded us to go into all the world with a message that is simple, but it's the only real answer to humanity's sin. And we are to proclaim it without partiality, without trying to tone it down or punch it up or adjust it to include something that makes it sound, you know, hip and stylish. In fact, the gospel has never sounded stylish. It's not supposed to. Scripture says it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And God deliberately chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might glory in the presence of God. Far from trying to court the, the approval and applause of the academic elite, our message is supposed to confound them. And that rules out virtue signaling, that virtue signaling evangelical trend where people are so desperate to try to reconcile the world's wisdom with God's. Why? Because after all, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and that's how it's supposed to be. Let's pray. Lord, keep us faithful to biblical truth, even though we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the very idea of a fixed, immutable standard of righteousness. May we stand with those who've given their lives for the truth, rather than with those who give up the truth so that they can keep their earthly comforts or court the approval and admiration of the world or otherwise adjust the gospel message to try to remove that offense. Strengthen our hearts by your grace and help us to remember that Christ suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood and therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the same reproach he endured. And may that bring him eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.